And now, uh, let's uh, turn to Philippians chapter 3 again, as we are continuing to study this great chapter. If you don't know where Philippians 3 is, you can take that Bible that's in the pew, the blue book there. And you can turn to page 981. 981. We'll be reading again verses 1 through 11. Our focus will be uh, verse 8 this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thus, the reading of God's word. Let us pray again. Oh, Lord, we praise you that you have given up your son for us. We thank you, oh, Father, that you've revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. That we know you, oh, God, because of the revelation of your son, whom John says has explained the Father. Oh, Lord, may we all the more this morning treasure the Lord Jesus And glory in him and put the whole of our lives in his hands more and more to our dying day. Bless us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. In the movie The Mummy, uh, yes, yes, I saw The Mummy. There was this really low-life character called Benny Gabor. And we first run into him early in the movie when he and our hero, Rick O'Connell, are serving in the Foreign Legion, French Foreign Legion. 
And they're being attacked by Medjai warriors, and it gets really desperate. And in the middle of it, uh, Benny abandons ship and leaves uh, Rick to die. So they meet three years later, 1926, I think it was, um, on a ship. And at this point, Benny is leading a group of Americans to the lost city of Hamunaptra, where all the wealth of ancient Egypt is supposed to be. And so the Americans are wanting to find this. Benny is leading them there. Uh, Rick is skeptical of Benny's motives. He's seen how he operates. And so the conversation goes like this. So what's the scam, Benny? You take them out into the middle of the desert and then you leave them to rot? Unfortunately, no. These Americans are smart. They pay me only half now, half when I get back to Cairo. So this time I must go all the way. (laughs) So if he could have, he would have let him out in the the desert and just left him to die. That's what Benny's like. But unfortunately, he can't do that. (laughs) He's going to have to go all the way and bring him back or he won't get his money. So you fast forward to the end of the movie and... The city of Hamunaptra is falling, collapsing in, and all of its exits are sealing off, okay? Everybody's escaping. Benny had already been out with a bag of treasure, put it on his camel. He went back into the city to get another bag of treasure, and he will not let it go. He's dragging it. It's holding him back. It's dragging. Everything's collapsing. There's the exits are closing off. He's dragging his... He will not let it go. And finally, the great wall seals him off to his death. And uncharacteristically of scarab beetles. But in the movie, they did this. They, go, they proceed to uh, eat him a lot. Well, I digress. Uh, <laughs> but... You see, Benny regarded his bag of treasure as gain, right? So much so that he wouldn't leave it behind. He just wouldn't. He wouldn't let it go. And because he did this, because he was dependent, he depended on it for his whole future. But in reality, it was not gain, but terrible permanent loss. He should have regarded it as like a worthless piece of garbage and cast it aside and escape. But he held on to it as its treasure, as his treasure. And it brought him to his death. When you see the parallel, Paul is giving us this overarching snapshot of his life as a believer in Jesus Christ. All of his status and achievements as a Jew listed there in verses 5 and 6. These, he says, were his gain. He calls them his confidence in the flesh. He believed that the things he had and the things he did assured him of being righteous and accepted before God. But now he not only, he doesn't just regard them as neutral or indifferent, but as positively lost, as harmful. The things that he sees, if I hold on to them or held on to them, they would destroy me. The very things I thought would gain me acceptance would destroy me. And so I regard them now not as gain, but as loss 
and he casts them aside. And then in verse 8, he brings it to the present. Because up to that point, he says, I have counted this as a one-time decision that proceeds into the present. But now he uses this present tense. I am counting all things as loss. So it's not just this impulsive act in the past, but this deep-seated resolution, this lasting attitude or way of life. And I regard everything that would stand in the way of my confidence in Christ, that would interfere with my trust in Him, I count it as rubbish. This is a vulgar term in the Greek. And it means either excrement or it could mean basically rotting food. He says, that's the way I regard anything that would stand in the way, that would hinder me from trusting in Christ and gaining Christ. So, from his perspective, as one has put it, nothing together with Christ was preferable to all things without Christ. See that? Having nothing and to have Christ is way better than if I had everything but didn't have Christ. So if you gain all else in life, but you do not have Christ, then the scripture teaches that your life is a tragedy. But if you have Christ... There can be no ultimate tragedy, tragedy, but only the happiest of endings for your life. So, anything and everything that would stand in the way of my gaining Christ and having more of Him, knowing more of Him, trusting more of Him, adoring Him more, I must count as refuse and excrement that I might have Christ. So that all pursuits in life must become a part of this one pursuit of Christ. All pursuits must be a part of this one pursuit of Christ. Now I want to throw out two, and by way of application, two uh, perspectives that we must uh, guard against. Okay, The first is this, living for Christ in creation or leaving Christ... For creation. I want to draw that distinction. And particularly, I'm speaking to us as people who believe the Bible's rich and wonderful doctrine about creation. Are we living for Christ in our regard of creation or leaving Christ for creation? So, one of the most precious teachings in Scripture, one of the things that uh, floored me. Uh, as a young man, was to hear or to read about the fact that there is no distinction between the secular and the sacred in Scripture. Uh, that I'm not, I'm not more or less holy when I'm meditating on the Word directly or working on an engineering problem or building a fence or listening to music or hugging a grandchild. That all of these things are to be lived, done in the presence of God, for the glory of God. I learned that your work is just as pleasing to God and is just as much a part of obedience to God as my work as a pastor. 
No difference. It does not have its worth before God because only because you make money so you can give to the church or because you can use the opportunity to present Jesus at work. No. Scripture teaches that the work itself is important to God. That your work itself is a manifestation of your being the image of God. It is in your work you actually reflect God day after day. Those are glorious truths of Scripture. So this teaching of... The goodness of creation and the goodness of our cultural endeavors is invigorating and liberating. All of life is important to God. All of life can be a part of our pursuit of God, part of our pursuit of Christ. We fellowship with God in the midst of all that we do. We depend on him as we do our work and we rejoice in him. We live in gratitude and peace, trusting that he's working out his purposes in all that we do. However... If we pursue creation and culture instead of Christ, in place of Christ, exclusives of of Christ, then creation and culture become our idols. Then we are abusing creation and culture and we're abusing ourselves as human beings. We're not pursuing them for Christ's sake. We're pursuing them in Christ's place. And the difference is ultimately heaven or hell. So, at the very least, maintaining an eager and warm heart for worship, for the fellowship of God's people, for his word and prayer, this is a vital aspect of our pursuing Christ in all things. So if, for instance, try to give some examples here. If, for instance, our time outside of work and school and other responsibilities, we completely and consistently neglect any seeking of Christ in the word and prayer, how can we say that we're pursuing Christ in all that we do? How can we say that he's the context for all we do and the goal of all we do if we're neglecting the particular and unique revelation of Christ in his word? If we don't want him in this full display of his beauty, how can we say that we want him in all things? So, for example, if it's let's say, 20 hours of TV every week, okay? And no time in the Word every week. Maybe we need to evaluate this statement. I count all things as rubbish that I may gain Christ, (laughs) okay? Say, if in a year at this pace, I total some 1,000 hours of TV and virtually no time in the Word in prayer, perhaps this would be a better statement. I count Christ as rubbish, That I may gain entertainment and be found in it, having a happiness in it that I do not find at all in Christ. I'm just saying. Okay. Now, 
perhaps it's gaming or social media or novels or whatever, none of which are wrong in themselves. In fact, I regard these, as I think Scripture does, as good gifts from God. But what part do they play in our lives? Am I trying to get from these things significant and meaning and satisfaction that can only be found in Christ? Are these kind of substitute saviors? Am I viewing these things as my primary means of fulfillment and happiness? So, as we pursue the richness of life under God, we must as, as the central part of this, cultivate a single-hearted passion for Christ and count anything that would interfere with that as rubbish to be cast aside. Every part of our lives must become a part of our pleasing Christ and living for Christ, not a replacement for pleasing Christ and living for Christ. So... We have to beware, I think, of a supposed doctrine of creation that actually becomes an excuse for ignoring Jesus. Then we're doing no better than the guy who says, hey, I can worship God Sunday mornings at the golf course, right? So along the same spectrum that creation and culture becomes the means by which I ignore Jesus altogether. So, living for Christ in creation or leaving Christ for creation. And secondly, trusting Christ for heaven, does that include trusting Christ for life? Okay. Trusting Christ for heaven versus trusting Christ for life. Those aren't opposed to each other, but do they, are, are both of them a part of our lives? So, As we see here, Paul called all of this former status and achievement as a confidence in the flesh. Okay? Hendrickson writes, Flesh is anything apart from Christ on which one bases his hope for salvation. And so most of us would say, I'm trusting nothing but Christ for acceptance. With God, I'm not putting my confidence in anything that I can do in the flesh, but only in what Christ has done for me. And we say, amen. We all agree. Yes. But when I say I trust Christ for salvation, can I also say I trust Christ for satisfaction in life? I say I trust him, but do I treasure him? Do I trust him to get me to heaven, but I don't trust him to enrich and fulfill my life? And that's why I largely ignore the word in prayer in my spare time, because I think other things will make me happy, but these will not. In this case, you see, Jesus is kind of in your back pocket like a driver's license. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's my uh, heaven license. Yeah, CC right here. I trust in Christ alone for my salvation. I always have it with me. I'll pull it out when I need it. Right? Your your license to heaven. It's different, though, if you have a fishing license like uh, a man we knew in another church, which happened to represent his consuming passion. This man had a 
business. It opened at 9 o'clock. Sunday school, I believe, started at 945. That was the one day he didn't work. Every single morning, he was on the lake fishing. I'm not saying once or twice. Do you understand? Every single morning. Unless he was sick or if it was hunting season, he might go hunting instead. So, seven days a week, 5.30 in the morning, he's on the lake fishing for two or three hours at work at nine. Every single day. Did I say every day? Okay. Um, So, you see, this license represented his treasure, his passion. He couldn't get enough of it. He couldn't wait to get back to it. So, there's a difference in just carrying something around as you're hopeful assurance to get to heaven and it's something that represents your passion the passion of your life Christ I would say this is not your trust unless he is beginning to be your treasure okay he's not your trust unless he's beginning to be your treasure it's interesting how Jesus defines Eternal life in John seventeen three. Some of you are familiar with this. He says, this is eternal life. And he doesn't say that you get to go to heaven or that you live forever. You know, that would beg the case, right? He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So living in vital relationship to Christ is eternal life. And I would put it this way. He's not the ticket. He's the concert. Okay. He's the concert. And the concert begins right now. Is that how you view Christ? (laughs) You've come to the concert of his glory. Is he the concert? Is every day the concert of his greatness? Are you growing in your admiration of him, your enjoyment of him, your wonder at him? Are you exploring him and discovering him? Is your life enriched by your praise of him? Is your life kind of centered and oriented around that admiration? Does that define you? You see, for Paul, he says here in verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And he says, my Lord. It's the one declared in chapter 2 is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow because he will have the name that is above all names. The very name of God himself. Because he fully expressed who God is by laying down his life. He fully expressed the great love and even humility and servanthood of God for his people. And so he is Lord. And here, only place in all of Paul's writings, he says, my Lord, my Lord. So he says, Jesus, this is eternal life that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not simply good, I get to go to heaven now, right? Eternal life begins when I begin to adore and delight in Jesus Christ. It begins when I begin to have communion 
with God. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. Okay? That's the point. That's the point of the death on the cross. Not to just you living somewhere safe and sound forever. It's to bring you to God. (laughs) That you can have God now. You can have communion with God. You would be restored to a relationship with God. That's your salvation. That's your eternal life to be in relationship with God. That's the restoration of your humanity to enter the concert of God's greatness and goodness. So Christ on the cross bore away the sin of his people so they could be accepted and embraced by God. So that there would be no condemnation. So that we could stand righteous before God and enter into relationship with him. As Paul said, also in a very personal way in Galatians 2.20. He loved me and he gave himself for me. And that's why I live by faith in that one who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, as one scholar writes, knowing Christ Jesus is this. It's the knowledge of one who loves and one who knows himself beloved. It includes the experience of being loved by him and loving him in return. You see, the knowledge... Knowledge in the Old Testament is defined this way by F.F. Bruce. It's living in a close relationship with something or somebody. Such a relationship as to cause what may be called communion. (laughs) That's knowledge. It's communion with God. Communion with Jesus Christ. Knowing that he loves you and you love him in return. And so Hosea says this, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Hosea 6, 3. Do you believe that about the knowledge of Jesus? Oh, let me press on to know you, Lord Jesus, because you will rain the spring rains upon my life. You will water the earth. You will come to me, come to us as the showers. It might govern how we order our days, mightn't it? That we regard that knowledge as that precious and we regard the fruit of it to be like rain that will come into our dry and parched lives. And so... To gain Christ every day in ever-deepening relationship. And the context here, as most commentators would say, is that he's striving for that final day when he will know him perfectly. Okay, So this has this whole context of, of arching out to that day when I will know him perfectly and I will know that he knows me. The whole goal of life, to know and enjoy God, to be in wonder and awe over him forever. And here's where the knowledge of Jesus 
and breathtaking awe just they go hand in hand. Worship and knowledge just they go hand in hand. This isn't bare intellectual information. It's entering in this communion that brings us to awe so that really there's no knowledge apart from worship. We know him and we worship him. And it happens again and again. To truly know him is to begin to worship him. So, if you are here and perhaps you haven't begun to worship the Lord Jesus Christ or, or these things uh, sound foreign to you, there's a, a painting that when I do the tours, which at uh, the Kimball, I'm a docent and I do uh, art tours there. Um, I'm, right now, I'm doing it mainly for fourth and fifth graders. Because that's about my level, okay? <laughs> I don't want any adults yet. You know, they ask me things I don't know uh, here in my first year. But one of the paintings that I go to is by Titian. And it's the painting of Mary holding Jesus. And there is a saint, maybe St. Catherine. And she is leaned, well, if you're looking this way, she's leaned out over and her face is this far away from the baby. And the way he frames it, the, 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 the pyramid structure in a double circle with arms, it just, it's like a treasure map. X marks the spot and he says, that's it right there. This adoring face of this child. And this would work way better with adults, but I always refer to the song that I grew up with by the Four Seasons. Some of you I know know this. Many of you were not born. Uh, You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. I just think about that. As she's fixed upon this treasure of a child. Now, Titian painted this kind of painting in order to encourage Worship to encourage adoration of the child. And there are all these hints in the painting as to why you should adore this child. Here's John the Baptist coming in with a lamb. So as to call to mind, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here's a thrush up in the bush that are associated with thorns to point to his suffering. He has his arm over his head, Christ, a sign of sleep, but also a sign of death. There's a white cloth underneath him to signify the cloth that he was wrapped with. There's a storm back in the background to indicate, though everything is calm here, the storm is coming. The flock of sheep indicate, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. So you see, all together it is, come Adore this one who would give himself to humanity to bear their sin. And that's our invitation to you. We, we want to be kind of like that painting. To encourage you. Come adore him with us. Look far and wide at all the gods presented. You'll never find a god like this. Which we think is the true god. A God who sacrifices himself for his people. A God who identifies with us becoming flesh 
and remains God in man forever. A God that himself is in fellowship, a fellowship of love. What God is there? We, we invite you to join us. We can't take our eyes off of him. And we hope you'll join us. We hope by God's grace, you'll begin to see the beauty and the glory of this God who sacrificed himself in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we rest in you that you are this God revealed in Christ. You're a God to be trusted, a God to be adored and admired. Oh, Lord Jesus, what a king that we get to serve. What a king we get to know and explore and discover again and again and again. Oh, Lord, we sometimes read really great books over and over. We watch some great movie or play again and again. We, we listen to a great symphony over and over. And we continue to, to see, to hear the beauty and the wonder and the complexity and the glory of it. And in you we have the author of everything. We have the one who made all things. And you've given yourself to us. To explore you and know you. Oh Lord, fix our hearts upon that joy. Fix our hearts upon the treasure of Jesus Christ. That we might explore him all the days of our life. And see it break into all the eons of eternity. Of exploring and rejoicing in your greatness and goodness. Amen.